encouraging. Incredible. Hey, just a real quick note about next Sunday. Um, we're excited to be able to serve Goodwin Frazier. Uh, we asked them, you know, pretty early on, hey, what can we do for you? And really quickly they said, we've got this pavilion out on our old playground that could really use a paint job. So we want to serve them that way. So we'd love to have you. It's going to be right after church next week. Uh, but we, we, we kind of need to know, we want to serve you lunch. We want to serve lunch beforehand and we kind of just need to know how many people to order lunch for. So if you can, uh, register for that. There's uh, an email that went out, um, or you can email me or call me or call Kathy, and we'll get you all signed up. One more, um, one more kind of big announcement before we dive into God's God's Word. Some of you, some of you know that that we we had over the last uh, month or so an opportunity to to actually look at a, a property to purchase long term. Uh, it's an interesting thing that God just kind of laid in our lap. Uh, but it's also becoming more and more clear that, that God is actually closing that door rather than opening it. And that is just fine. And it's been actually a really good process to go through because, because of a couple of things. And, and a lot of this came up in a, in a meeting I had with two very wise men in our congregation this week where they very gently and humbly told me, uh, listen, we've been asking this question about where are we going to do these things. Maybe instead we should ask the question of how. Maybe instead we should focus more clearly on the mission of the church. How are we going to connect people to Jesus? How are we going to connect them to each other? How are we going to connect them to their neighbors? And we put the idea of where are we going to do that on the back burner for a little while. And the truth is, uh, I'm excited that we got the chance to look at this, but most churches, most healthy church plants, don't even start asking that question for about 7 to 10 years. So we're going to just ease up on that question a little bit put it in the background, not ask it as much, so that we can actually ask the more important question of what are we called to do? Who are we and how have we been called to minister the gospel in this city? That idea that we were talking about in that meeting is called mission creep. It's this idea that you can get so focused on one little piece that you start to build kind of the whole world around that little piece and lose focus and lose sight of what actually the real mission is. It's actually what we're going to look at today as well in God's Word. So if you've got a Bible, open it up to Mark chapter 9. We're going to look at this incredible story, again, of Jesus taking three of his disciples up on top of this mountain and revealing himself to them in some amazing ways. And we have the opportunity to see Jesus, maybe in a way that you haven't seen him before, so that he can clarify for us our mission as Christians, so that he can clarify for us our mission as a church, so that we're not as susceptible to that mission creep that so oftentimes sneaks in. So pay attention now to God's word. Mark chapter 9, I'll start reading at verse 2. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, It's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And then suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. 
And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And Jesus said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Pray with me, please. Lord, we pray now that you would open uh, not just your word to us, but open our eyes and ears and our hearts that we might hear it, that we might see you, that we might come to know you more deeply, and that, Lord, our focus might be more refined, that our gaze might be set exclusively on you. Will you do that work in us this morning? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you have uh, maybe heard me tell this story before. Uh, I saw the, the results of this really fascinating study that were, that were done on a college campus one time. And the study went like this. As they gathered some, some students together, they had six people. Three of them wore white shirts. Three of them wore black shirts. And they gave them two basketballs. And they set them kind of in a circle. And they asked them to just pass the basketballs around to each other. And they videoed this, and then they asked some other students to come in and watch the video and to count how many times do the people wearing the white shirts touch the basketballs. So that's what they were supposed to focus on. How many times do the guys in the white shirts touch the basketballs? Well, in the middle of all of this, while these group of students are passing these balls around, right in front of the camera, standing in front of the group, walks in a guy wearing a gorilla outfit. And he stands directly in front of the camera, and he beats his chest like this for about three or four or five seconds, and then he walks out off of the stage. And when they got these students together to watch it, they said, okay, how many times did you see, you know, the white players touch the ball? And oh, by the way, what did you think about the guy in the gorilla suit? And 50% of the students said, what guy in a gorilla suit? They didn't even see him. The, the, the biggest thing that happened in the whole deal, a gorilla literally standing in front of the camera and they had no recollection of it at all. That's an illustration of what we've been talking about, this idea of mission creep. Is that sometimes we can actually be so focused on one little thing that we miss actually the biggest thing. That we miss the most important thing in our lives. And churches can be, uh, can be guilty of that and individual Christians can be guilty of that. That we begin to take our focus off of Jesus and who he is, and we turn it to something that's maybe close to Jesus, but not quite who he is. And we start to build our focus around that thing. This happens a lot when we're tired. (laughs) Tired of going to a job I don't like. Maybe even tired of going to a job you do like. Tired of having the same conversation over and over with my children. Tired of setting up chairs at church. Tired of having to try and pretend to be somebody that I'm not? Worn out? And so we start to focus kind of on one little thing that we think we might be able to build our significance around. And we take our focus off of Jesus. You know, Jesus gathers his disciples here. And he he does some weird things, okay? Let's just get that out of the way up front. Weird stuff happening in this passage. But he does so and uses a lot of really strange things to redirect their focus to him. 
to who He is, to what He has come to do, and to why that matters in their lives. We get to see that too. We get to look more clearly at who Jesus is in this passage. We get to look clearly at Jesus so that it might redirect our focus to Him, fix our gaze on Him so that we might bask in who He is and it might drive out everything else in our lives. Or maybe even better said, bring everything else into better focus. We want to stay away from mission creep and looking at Jesus is how we do it. So let's look at kind of how he reveals himself to us in this passage. We're going to focus actually on four things. Four things that we see about Jesus. And it's this, is that we see Jesus' glory. We see Jesus' authority. We see actually the rest that we get to have in Jesus. And we see the identity that we have in Jesus. So his glory, his authority, the rest we have in him, and the identity that we get to find in him. Ready? Let's look at that first one. Jesus' glory. Well, in order to talk about this, actually, we have to go back and give a little bit of background uh, in, in the Old Testament, because there's some interesting things that happen on the top of this mountain that, that actually sound a lot like things that happen in the Old Testament. If, if you'll remember, if you're familiar with the story of the Exodus, remember that Moses actually took God's people out of Egypt, where they were in slavery, and he brought them out with these incredible plagues that he, that, he, uh, that he inflicted upon the Egyptians. And he brought them through the Red Sea on dry ground, parted the waters of the Red Sea. And then he brought them out into the wilderness and he met with them on mountain, on Sinai. He brought Moses up and God's word tells us that the people, as they stood back and they looked on that mountain, what they saw was they saw a cloud descend on the mountain. Now, they had seen something similar before because throughout the wilderness, God had been leading them by a cloud. Fire at night and a cloud in the daytime. So we have something that's glowing and something that's cloudy. And when we come to this mountain of Sinai, we see this cloud actually, and it's kind of glowing as well, descend upon the mountain where Moses goes up to meet with God. If you get further along, actually, uh, in the book of Exodus and Numbers and Leviticus, you see that God's people are told to build a tabernacle, a tent, a place where they would worship and a place where God would actually meet them. And it's amazing, at the end of, of the book of Exodus, you see this incredible passage where the glory of the Lord actually fills the tabernacle, and it's a cloud that descends upon the tabernacle and fills it with God's glory, so much so that, that not even Moses can go in. Nobody can go in because the unmitigated glory of the Lord is there filling the tabernacle. You see that as well when they build the temple. And the temple is dedicated as that the glory of the Lord fills it. There's this cloud that fills it. Furthermore, when Moses, we're back at, at Sinai, when he comes down from Mount Sinai, do you remember what was interesting about him? His face was glowing. He was glowing because he had been in God's presence. He had been in the presence of the glory of the Lord. And so here we have Moses in the midst of this cloud of God's glory, and he's glowing because of it. Now, if you're one of the disciples, one of Peter, James, or John, and you're up on this mountain, you are finding yourself, I mean, it's really familiar to you, right? Because you're finding yourself in the midst of the same kind of thing. Here's this glory cloud that's filling the mountain, and here's Jesus who is glowing. His clothes, Mark says, are, are white. And it's, it's great the language he uses. It's like he doesn't know how to describe it. He's like, if you could bleach him this white, I, there's no way you could do it. They're so white and so bright and so radiant. It's like Jesus is glowing. And here you find yourself in the middle of this cloud of God's glory. And Jesus is glowing and shining. And you're enveloped by the glory of God. That would have been an amazing experience. It was a confusing experience. 
We're told Peter just kind of starts babbling, right? Because he doesn't know what to say because he's just super confused and frightened. It's interesting, isn't it? This idea of being enveloped by God's glory. Being enveloped in God's presence. Really being able to soak and bask in the glory of God. What does that look like for us in our lives? Let me just kind of ask this question for us. Is Are we focusing on that? Are we able to bask in God's glory such that it makes the other things in our life become lesser things? Or are we actually giving glory to created things? Here's a few little diagnostic questions. If Jesus never pushes on your politics, then you're probably giving the glory that is due to the Son of God to a political platform. If Jesus never pushes on the way that you spend your money, then you are probably giving the glory that is due the Son of God to a consumeristic lifestyle. If Jesus never pushes on uh, the youth sports that dominates your life, then you are probably giving the glory that is due the Son of God to a child's pastime. Now, listen, these are not bad things we're talking about. But they are bad gods. They are bad things to build our lives upon. There is one who should get the glory. There is one to whom all glory should be given. There is one who descends and shines. And it is Jesus. It is not any of these other things. Uh, there's this very old document called the, the Westminster Confession of Faith. It was a document that was written in the 16th century. And it's actually what we think is a really fabulous summary of what the Bible says. In fact, it's what our denomination and our church has adopted as the best summary of what the Bible says. And that confession has within it something called a catechism. And a catechism is just a teaching tool that's questions and answers. And the very first question of the Westminster Catechism is this. What is the chief end of man? What is it that mankind was actually created for? What is it that when human beings are doing it, they are the most human? You know what the answer is? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Friends, we were created to glorify God. When Jesus is shining on that mountain, he is not shining like the moon, okay? The moon reflects glory. The moon reflects light. He's shining like the sun. He is emanating light. But we, as creatures, are called to be like the sun. I mean, excuse me, called to be like the moon. To reflect the light of the sun. To reflect the light of Jesus in all that we do. To glorify him in all that we do and say and think in the ways that we act and the ways that we function as a community. So the question really for us is, are we, are we a little sliver of a moon, barely reflecting, or are we that big, full, super moon, reflecting God's glory in all that we do? Let's move to the second thing that we see, is that we see not only Jesus' glory in this passage, we see also His authority. Now, remember who's up here. They, they go up onto this mountain, and they've got Jesus with them, and, but immediately, uh, Mark tells us, is that two other guys appear. And there are two other guys that have actually been dead for hundreds and hundreds of years. Moses and Elijah. We've just talked about Moses a little bit. Elijah was a prophet in the Old Testament. In fact, he was one of the greatest, if not the greatest, and most revered prophets in the Old Testament. 
And the prophet's job in the Old Testament was to speak God's words to the people. So now we have the Bible. We have God's word given to us here. This is what we can rely on. It is true. In the Old Testament, before they had God's word written and kind of codified and canonized for them, it was the prophet's job to say, this is what God says to you. The prophet was the mouthpiece of the Lord. When God wanted to speak to his people, he would speak through the prophets. And so that's the way that people understood the prophets to be, is that they would be the ones who would speak God's word. They would be the ones who would communicate with the people. Now, remember just a few weeks ago when we looked at this passage uh, of Peter confessing Jesus as a Christ. A few weeks ago we looked at it, but it's actually interesting. Uh, we read in verse 2, after six days, so it's really just a week ago in their lifetime that they've had this conversation. And do you remember the, the gist of that conversation? Jesus says, who do people say that I am? Remember the answers? Some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Some say one of the prophets. And Peter, of course, saying the best thing that he ever said in his whole life, says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. Fascinating, isn't it, that, that what is wrapped up in people's mind about the confusion about who Jesus is, is that he is, yes, maybe somebody who speaks God's word, but that's kind of where it ends. See, what Jesus is actually saying, what the Father is actually saying even to these disciples up there when he says, listen to him, he's saying, this isn't just another spokesman. This isn't just another mouthpiece. This is me. This is the Word made flesh. It's the way that John opens up his gospel. The Word made flesh who has come to dwell with us. Fascinating. The word dwell actually in John's gospel is the word for tabernacle. The word for tent here that that Peter says, why don't I put up some tents? It's tabernacle. Remember the glory that descended upon the tabernacle? Jesus is really saying, if you want to see the glory of God displayed here, it's right here. If you want to see the place of authority in your life, if you want to see God's words come alive in you, it's me, the Word made flesh, dwelling here with you. Another good question for us is, what kind of importance are we placing on God's Word? What kind of importance are we placing on that in our lives? I read a story the other day about this concert violinist. And someone was asked, someone asked her, you know, how did you become so good at what you do? How did you become such a master at your instrument? And the words that she used, two words, she said, uh, it's these two words that have been really important to me. Planned neglect. That's That's fascinating. What does that mean? And she said, well... When I used to, when I was younger, and I would practice, what I would do is I'd, I'd get up in the morning, and I'd make my bed, and I'd kind of clean the house, and I'd do my chores, and I'd dust things, and I'd run some errands, and I'd do all the things that I thought I needed to do during the day, and then with the time that was left over, I would rehearse, I would practice. She said, but really there was a revolution in my ability when I decided that there was going to be some planned neglect in my life. That I was actually going to start my day by doing what was most important. And I was going to plan to neglect some of those other things. And the time that was left over is what I would devote that time to. Martin Luther famously said, I have so much to do today that I have to pray for three hours. That's planned neglect. That's saying, I am going to focus on what is most important. And you know what? The emails can wait. And the news of the day can wait. 
And the other time that I'm going to spend doing something else with my life can wait so that I can actually focus on what is most important. So that I can open God's Word and see what He has to say. So that I can come to see Jesus more clearly, more fully today. Here's a third thing that we see in this passage. We have Jesus' glory, Jesus' authority. Now we also see Jesus as our rest. What do I mean by that? Well, again, we need to go kind of back in the Old Testament to think about this for a minute. Moses, who we've already talked about, remember, led God's people out of Egypt. He led them through the wilderness of Sinai. He met with God on this mountain. He gave them the law. God actually spoke through him. And he was leading them into this land that God had promised. That God had said, I'm going to take you into this land. It's going to be the place where you're going to rest. It is going to be the promised rest that I'm giving you. Now, by and large, Moses, uh, Moses was a really fabulous guy. <laughs> Moses did a lot of things really wonderfully. Moses, the, the Bible talks about Moses being, um, you know, really different than most people actually, that God actually spoke to him face to face, crazy kind of stuff like that. But Moses was a sinner just like you and me. Moses had his own frailties. And some of those sins, actually, he received some consequences for them. And one of those consequences was he was not allowed to actually enter that land of rest. He was barely allowed even to see it. He could see it kind of from a distance up on the top of a mountain, but he died before God brought his people into that land of Canaan. Now listen how cool this is. One of the guys that shows up with Jesus here is Moses. In the book of Hebrews, the writer of the Hebrews makes a very strong connection between this land of rest in the Old Testament and Jesus actually is the one who brings us real and true rest. Is that what the Bible says is that that land of rest and even the Sabbath rest proclaimed in the Old Testament is all pointing to Jesus as the one in whom we are to find true and real and lasting rest. And how cool is this that Moses gets to stand there with Jesus, the real rest. He gets to stand and be with and look face to face with Jesus who says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. He gets to stand and look face to face with Jesus, who is better than the promised land of Canaan. He gets to look face to face with Jesus, who the little things that Moses was leading his people toward, they only pointed toward it. Interesting, isn't it, for us that so oftentimes we have these ideas, this is the thing that's going to finally kind of give me rest, it's the thing that's finally going to give me significance, it's the thing that's finally going to let me just kind of let down my guard. If I can just get these things, if I can just finally find that new job, if I can finally find that husband or that wife, if I can finally get my life kind of under control, if I can finally insert whatever blank it is that you insert, then I'll be okay. I'll be able to let down my guard. I'll be able to rest. Friends, I'm so guilty at inserting so many things into that blank. Jesus is saying here to Moses, to his disciples, to us, I'm the only one that goes in that blank. I'm the only thing that can fill you. I'm the only thing that can give you real and lasting rest. It's all been pointing to me, and here I am. Finally, let's look at this. Jesus' authority, Jesus' glory, the rest that we have in Him, and then finally this, the identity that we have in Jesus. 
It had to have been crazy to be one of these disciples. Up on the top of this mountain, you've walked up there with Jesus. He's already said lots of really confusing things that you don't understand. And then really crazy stuff starts happening, right? This cloud descends, Jesus is glowing, and then you hear, booming out of this cloud, the voice of God the Father speaking. Do you know in the Gospel of Mark, God the Father speaks twice. He speaks at Jesus' baptism, and he speaks here in this passage. And you know, he says almost exactly the same thing both times. This is my son, whom I love. Isn't it beautiful? When the father decides to speak so that regular people can hear him, he is just telling the world how much he loves his son. That's what he wants to talk about. He wants to talk about how much he loves his son. I know there's some of you who are sitting there right now thinking, I sure wish my father would have spoken to me that way. I sure wish I could have heard those words from my earthly father. And friends, if that's you, I'm sorry. I truly am. I'm sorry that you haven't heard those words. But I want you to hear this today. These are the words that God is speaking to you. In John 17... Before Jesus goes to die, he prays this long and amazing prayer. And one of the things he prays is that his disciples would actually know that God loves them just as much as he loves Jesus. We looked at a little bit of of Ephesians 1 already today. But all throughout that chapter in Ephesians, what the Apostle Paul is saying is that there are so many wonderful benefits that we have because of what Jesus has done. We have been forgiven. We have been loved. We have been lavished with His grace. And it's all happened because we are found in Him. Over and over and over. That's the language that Paul uses. Is that Christians are found in Christ. Now we talk about it all the time that that we use this language of like, Jesus is in me. But honestly, the Bible uses exactly the opposite language. Is that we are found in Jesus. That we are united to Him in a way that can never be torn apart. Because it's not something we've done, it's something that He's done. He has united us to Himself. So when the Father looks at the Son and He says, This is my Son, whom I'm pleased with, whom I love. He's saying those things to you and me. When the Father looks at us, what He sees is Jesus shining because we're wearing His robes. We are clothed with that shining, glorious robe of Christ so that that is what the Father says to us. We hear such different language all the time, don't we? From our own heads. I didn't get that job, therefore I'm just kind of a failure. She broke up with me, therefore, I'm actually unlovable. There are some things in my past that I'm really ashamed of, therefore, I am shameful. I'm unusable. I'm broken beyond repair. Hear the words that Jesus, that the Father says to you because of Jesus. You're my son, you're my daughter, in you I'm well pleased. You're probably familiar with, uh, you know, Colonel George Custer. But until a couple days ago, I did not know the name of his wife. His wife is Libby Custer. I'm sure you've not read too many stories about Libby Custer, but there's a fabulous one that I read the other day. And it says that uh, the, the George was out for like all summer, fighting wars, away from his young wife. And he decided he wanted to come home and actually surprise his wife. And so he marched his soldiers 55 straight hours to get home so that he could see Libby. 
two of his men died on that march. Uh, a, a good handful of horses died as well. It was a really bad move as far as a leader and a person. It was also a really bad career move because he was court-martialed for it. He was stripped of his rank and his pay for a year. In fact, a lot of historians would say the reason why he charged so hard into the Battle of Little Bighorn where he and everybody that was with him were killed was because he was trying to get back into the army's good graces because he had done such stupid things before. But you know, if you look at Libby's journal... What she writes in her journal is, for me there was one perfect day. And it was the day that he came to see me. Have you ever been loved like that? It's pretty amazing. The Bible says if you belong to Jesus, you have. That is what he says to you. Is that I have marched, not across the country, but across the universe. To come and lay myself down for you. Isn't it beautiful that with God there is no mission creep? God never thinks, oh, you know what? She's just kind of mediocre right now, so I'm not sure really how much I love her. It's never the case. God is always looking at us and seeing the glory of Jesus. It's always the way that he finds us and sees us. Friends, what would it be like to live in that kind of love? To live in that kind of identity? To reflect that kind of glory in all that we do? That's what we're called to as a church. That's what we're called to as individuals. May God enable us to do that even today. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much just for this uh, wonderful reminder of your glory. uh, That you have, on this mountain, turned yourself inside out so that we could see who you really are. That we could be reminded of it. Lord, I pray that the small things would fade away for us so that we might take deeper focus on the real thing, so that we might see and reflect your glory, so that we might bow to your authority, or so that we might come and find ultimate rest in you and not in other things. And Lord, that we would be driven by the glorious news that you have loved us like your own. Lord, will you let us do that today and always? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.